นโมทัสสะบวะทวรหะทวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบวะทวรหะทวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะนโมทัสสะบวะทวรหะทวสัมมาสัมบุทัสสะพุทธังนามังสังฆังนามัสสะเราจะสื่อสารในการพูดถึงเรื่องของศาสนาและผมเป็นผู้ที่ยินดีที่สุดที่จะพูดถึงเรื่องของศาสนาและผมเป็นผู้ที่ยินดีที่สุดที่จะพูดIs profoundly important, and and it's not. It didn't appear that way when I started out on on this path of practice. I probably heard the word the Buddhist faith, and and I uh, kind of lumped it alongside you know, Christian faith or Hindu faith, and had a vague concept of what faith meant, and. It generally represented the dimension <laughs> that I wasn't interested in. You know, I wanted Buddhist insight and Buddhist wisdom, and um, faith didn't count, uh, didn't register very highly. However, as the years have gone by, I very willingly, very gladly acknowledge uh, the um, discovery of how uh, humble recognition of. How profoundly important this dimension is, and and it's not what I thought it was. So, I don't have a, a whole list of information uh, to impart to you on the subject, and I don't know what the scriptures say about it. However, since I was asked, and I found that the subject is important, I am very, very glad to uh, invite us all to participate in a contemplation on this matter. What is what is faith? A useful way of approaching a contemplation on faith is not necessary. It's certainly not easy, and it's not even necessary to get an exact explanation of what faith is. But I know in my mind, after all these years, there's still part of my mind that wants to get, trying to get it, and and that's. One reason why so many of us dismiss the dimension of faith, because it's not there to be got. It's like asking you know, somebody, "How do you know if you can trust that person, such and such a person? How do you know if you can trust them?" So, how do you know if you can trust anybody? And it's like, how do you know? Like how to float if you're swimming in the ocean, how do you know how to float? If you've tried floating, you realize you've got to somehow let go of controlling and do something that we call trusting that you're going to be held. And if you do it, then the breathing changes, and wonderfully, the water supports you, and you just float around top of the water, and you can 
swim for miles through the ocean and when you get tired, flip over on your back and relax and trust and breathe and rejuvenate and then keep turn over and keep swimming again. And, uh, the marvelous thing when you get a feeling for that if you're into swimming long distances. But how do you really pinpoint exactly what's going on in that letting go? And do you really do it? Do you really do the letting go? Or is it more a case of something you don't do? And I like to think this is it's, it's, it's in this area that we we can find the key to relating consciously to what trust is about. It's not a matter of doing. Believing, that's something we do. That's something in our heads. Believing needs to be understood as a a perhaps related dimension of faith, but it's not the same thing. Faith is something we we can, I, I suggest, more with our hearts. And believing is something we more do with our heads. We have ideas that we believe in, They give us a certain sense of certainty. But faith, trust, confidence, all of these words, all the Pali words, sadha, they all allude to something much more amorphous. And and I would suggest that it's not something that we do. The other, the five spiritual faculties are probably most of us are aware of. Sadha, Virya, Sati, Samadhi, Panya. Faith, energy, mindfulness, collectedness, discernment. As Buddha pointed out, these five spiritual faculties, which are really, really important. If we don't have them functional, then it's really difficult to get around inside. Like the five physical faculties seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. If we're blind or we're deaf or we can't smell or taste anything or touch anything, can't sense anything, we're really limited, obstructed in our ability to make our way around. And so we're all grateful that we have these faculties. And so as for the five spiritual faculties, faith, energy, mindfulness, concentration, discernment, you know, it's really, really important that we get a handle on these. And the four of them, you know, like energy, mindfulness, collectedness, discernment, we can see all these. These things you do, you do energy, you can generate energy, you can do mindfulness, you can generate mindfulness, you can do collectedness, you can generate collectedness, you can do discernment. But how do you do faith? How do you do trusting? You don't, you can't. And if we expect to be able to, well we're going to get very frustrated. And I think this is what does happen for most of us who received a a hyper-scientific form of education. We've been through this massive conditioning process which causes us to feel addicted to conceptual certainty. We just love understanding stuff. Conceptually, we just love feeling... This is not true for all people in the world. still a lot of people in the world that don't have the kind of education, that kind of programming conditioning we've been through, and they're okay with all sorts of mysterious things. They don't understand all things, whatever. They they just, they trust not things, sometimes not always wise things, but they're they're not (coughs) driven to having to understand everything. They're not (coughs) establishing a sense of psychological security and 
uh, integration and on the basis of understanding. They, they don't mind not knowing stuff. It's because they weren't programmed the way that we were. We're all programmed to just love understanding about stuff. And not that we're wrong, it's just that as it happens, it's not a very balanced way of conditioning a human being because we do have this faculty for trusting. Yeah. Obviously, in the realm of human relationships, we have it. How do we know? And what is the result of trusting somebody? If you don't trust somebody, what is the consequence of that? Or if you positively distrust somebody, what is the consequence of that? You certainly can't open your heart and love and be available. Deeply available to somebody, sensitively, if you positively distrust somebody. So we know in some areas how important it is to trust, to allow ourselves to feel unsure, but not be intimidated into contracting back into controlling mode. So, well, I don't know whether this person is going to do such and such, but I trust their intention. I do, I trust them. What does that really mean? What does it really mean? Well, if we're trying to ask that question with our heads, or we give ourselves a headache and maybe we just dismiss it. Well, I would suggest with contemplating why the Buddha identified sadhar or faith or trust or confidence as a spiritual faculty and as such identified how tremendously important it is, is that if we want to relate to it consciously that we don't try to understand it, but we try to relate to it. No, relating to a fragrance. You look at a honeysuckle flower, and you can, or a honeysuckle bush. You you can feel the woodiness and the toughness of that sturdy, hardy vine it seems to survive pretty much any condition you can take a photograph of it but then you smell it that's a different dimension isn't it it's different the colour is one thing you can get that the texture is one thing you can get that but the the fragrance of honeysuckle you can relate to it but you can't get it you can't grab it and take it back in your hand and show somebody. Mm. And all that says is it's a different frequency, it's a different dimension of experience. And likewise, in the realm of the spiritual inquiry, the, the path of spiritual inquiry, this faculty of faith is a different realm, a different territory, a different dimension, different frequency. And a tremendously important one. But let's not try to understand it in the same way that we might understand how to generate energy or how to ask specific questions to inquire the way we do the other uh, modes of spiritual engagement. So recognising, allowing for the fact that we can't get the relevance of faith and that doesn't diminish it. Maybe somebody asks you, why are you, why are you living this life as a monk? I mean, look at you. You've know, you you've got no money. What happens when you get old? 
What's going to happen when you get old? You've got no insurance policy. You know, nobody will want to be around you when you get old. You know, they'll just abandon you and you know, you know, thoroughly insecure. And it's true, it's a possibility. You know, we don't live in a Buddhist society. It's not like there's tens of thousands of people that want to look after old, dribbly monks. And, you know, what are you doing for society anyway? I mean, look at you, this uh, kind of rinky-dink little outfit, you know, not of any great consequence not of any great significance and it's really hard work it's no fun really being a monk well actually it can be quite fun on all sorts of levels but you know, it's not as much fun as you know, being a householder where you can go to rock concerts and holidays and, and all sorts of food <laughs> and, yeah. why? why would you choose to live the life of renunciation. So, I don't know, really. But I trust. There's something I trust in. Something I have faith in. I can't prove it. But there is something that I really have faith in. And it's really important. And there are levels of faith. There are levels of trust. Levels of consequence. The initial spurious kind of faith that one experiences perhaps when you first come across say we're talking here about Buddhist teachings you know, and you just read a little bit about it and understand what the Buddha was talking about you don't, have to, you don't have to be afraid of suffering anymore boredom is not an indictment loneliness is not an indictment frustration is not an indictment this is just a sign of where you're hanging on to the wrong thing this is a sign of where you're investing in something that's inherently limited and to realize that which is not inherently obstructed and limited, you need to turn around and look closely and you can discipline your faculties, you can discipline your heart and mind and pay attention to the experience of disappointment or frustration or loneliness or despair. Suffering is not a symptom of your failure. It's It's a signpost. It's where you need to pay attention to look and see where you can get Strong, where where insight can emerge. We can, of course, whenever we're suffering, we can distract ourselves with sense treats, and that's very easy to do. But all that does is compound our addiction to sense treats, and after a while, we want a better flavour ice cream or or a bigger rock concert. That's the way the senses work. Not that they're wrong; it's just that. That's the dynamic. And gratification of desire works to some degree as a distraction, but it's not really satisfying. Momentary gratification is not the same thing as contentment. The Buddha said, no, well, you won't find contentment by following this irritation that we call desire. If you want real contentment, you've got to exercise this possibility that you have to turn around and look at discontentment. Don't be afraid of it. Yeah, it's a gift, it's reality showing you uh, the direction which you can go to find your way out of this feeling of being chronically obstructed. Mm. Yeah, suffering actually is, is helpful. No, you don't want to get carried away and <laughs> subject yourself to too much of it. That's not the point. And that's not what we're talking about. But certainly a fundamental change in view 
of what we're dealing with. And, and so when we hear this, we hear like the teaching of the Four Noble Truths, and, and that's, that's radical. That's a radically difficult or different approach to life. And a lot of people, that sounds nuts. That sounds totally crazy. But subjectively, and probably for all of us, you say, no, this is good news. It means I can stop fighting life. I can stop judging life. I can stop judging myself and just get real, just get honest and say, yeah, this is suffering. Let's look at it. And when you look at it, you suddenly stop telling lies to yourself. You've got all this energy available. And then the good news is that something opens up, letting go happens. You say, oh, it's like that. Life is like this. This happens too. And this feeling arises too. But it's not ultimate. There's that which knows the arising and ceasing of all these experiences. There's the awareness itself. There's the heart in which all these conditions are arising and ceasing. And then our faith that we have in Buddha's teaching moves from just being an initial inspired kind of faith to being a verified faith. All right. This is the point of trusting and bearing with the experience of disappointment and despair and sadness and seeking the real reality, letting go is the benefit. Letting go happens. It's not letting go. We don't do letting go. We have faith. We have confidence in this path of mindful, patient, gentle, bearing with the reality of this moment, disciplining our faculties until we learn to actually see beyond the way things appear to be. See beyond our preferences. See beyond our liking and disliking until you see it's like this. And by that time, letting go has already happened. We've already experienced the reward for ourselves. So as I was saying, there are different levels of faith. The initial spurious kind of faith, which if you, you're like me, you kind of get a little bit zealous about it and turn to a sort of a Buddhist missionary and want to go around getting everybody to do retreats and things and doesn't really get anywhere. It's a bit embarrassing, really. But that's what happens, like finding a good restaurant. You want to take everybody there, let's go and eat Japanese food. And Well, some people don't like Japanese food. I do, but not everybody does. So, but it's like that in the beginning. We get overly zealous with our initial enthusiasm for finding something that works. And this energy, this faith gets quickened. But if we've got some good friends who've walked the path a little longer than we have, a little further than we have, then they they kind of caution us and help us moderate and modify our enthusiasm. And and so we don't hopefully act too embarrassingly. And we use this energy of faith, of confidence, of trust to go deeper in our practices, a willingness to bear with things that previously were unbearable. We tolerate things that were previously utterly intolerable. We endure things that previously would have been utterly unendurable. Why would we have not endured them before? Because we didn't have the resource. We couldn't have endured them. We didn't have the confidence. We didn't have what? We didn't have the faith. So again, what is faith? Well, it's it gives rise to energy, gives rise to forbearance, gives rise to various supportive conditions, but what it actually is, is quite mysterious. We don't have to define it. We don't have to get what it is. We don't have to say what it is. We don't even have to justify what it is. 
Well, we can feel what it is. It's like, you know, somebody says, why do you choose to sit there and close your eyes, sit still and do nothing? What a, what a waste of time, waste of space you are. Yeah. Well, from the outside it can look like that, but you don't know what's going on the inside. Yeah. The investigation that's going on, the maturing of trust, the deepening of faith, the opening up to the possibility of asking really challenging questions of ourselves that unearth us from our habitual limitations. That's relevant. That's really meaningful. On the outside, maybe you look like a wally. That's true. You look like a wally on the outside, sitting there meditating, and not like a kind of Buddha image or one of those Zen priests all upright and beautiful and impressive. Most of us look a bit gawky in our meditation postures. We're not shaped in the way that makes it look beautiful. But on the inside, maybe there is something really beautiful happening. And that's not something that is obvious to the external eye, the eye that's conditioned by materialism. The language of this spiritual inquiry is language of feelings it's, mm. we can feel what faith is and respect it mm. trust in it mm. and in the beginning maybe we don't know how to read maybe we're just used to reading external signs and we're so conditioned by external mm. sense of affirmations of security and certainty and, and the relatively good feeling of knowing what we're doing. Maybe that's how we are in the beginning. That's understandable. But a lot of life is very mysterious. You know, like when somebody you love dies, or even somebody you don't know dies, and you just look at them and think, where's the person gone? You know, what's missing? You know, something's changed. And What's this all about? What is this all about? Funerals are often happens that that these questions arise. What's this all about? What is the meaning of all this? What's the relevance of all this? Well, if we have faith, we can open up to the actuality, the truth that we have access to, which is I don't know what this is all about, but I do have confidence there's something really meaningful in this experience of life. There's other people who've walked the spiritual journey and they've realized something. I trust, they have confidence. Ajahn Chah was not making up stories. The Buddha wasn't telling us fairy tales. You know, I trust in my heart that these beings were realized, these beings realized something. There is real reality which can be realized. I have confidence in that, I have trust in that. And, but maybe there's not much more we can say about that. But we can feel it. And then somebody said, well, come on, prove it. Said, well, it's like, you know, you're standing by the bath and somebody says, is the bath water the right temperature? So, well, I don't know. How can you tell? He said, well, you put your hand in it. You don't stand there thinking about it. How can you stand there looking at the bath water? It's hot enough. It's too hot. It's too cold. Standing there arguing with your friend about whether it's hot enough or too hot or too cold. That's really, really foolish. And so it is with a lot of debate and and, uh, so-called spiritual 
discourse a complete waste of time really it's using the wrong faculty we need to go inwards and feel need to stop thinking stop talking and feel inwardly with our spiritual faculties with this facility for intuiting or trusting and if we can't do it at the beginning that doesn't mean to say that we'll never be able to do it it's like children most children probably cannot imagine what it would be like to live without mum and dad looking after them. If you really question them, they, just the thought would be very, very disturbing for most children. But that doesn't mean to say that they're not going to grow up and develop the ability to become an individual and look after themselves. Similarly, if we're not too obstructed on the level of faith, the level of trust, then it's okay to say, well, I don't really know what this faculty of faith is, but you know, what the books say and what the teachers say, it makes sense. And I can choose to trust in this. I want to choose to trust in this. And it's by way of experiment. We're not, it's not believing, remember? Clinging to a belief is something else. This is choosing to trust. This is allowing ourselves to feel uncertain but not be defined by the feeling of uncertainty. The feeling of uncertainty is one thing, but if we've got faith, we can feel uncertainty but not be defined by it. Now, even if any of this makes sense, one of the really tricky things that many of us have to deal with is that we have often a backlog of denied distrust, doubt, self-doubt. And this is one of the side effects or byproducts of the, again, the scientific education. The scientific model, as wonderful as it is and as many advantages as it gives us, if that's all we know, if we don't know how to let go of it and open up and trust and in the mystery of life and access the unitive intelligence, or discriminative intelligence is all we have, then we will have a lot of distrust and doubt. And, yeah. I don't know if you've ever watched any of those YouTube clips with these people who call themselves the new atheists, you know, like Christopher Hitchens, who's passed away, or Richard Dawkins, who's still around. You know, these, these people are very, very articulate, very intelligent, but not, in my books, not necessarily very beautiful people. there's a frequency missing the potential the capacity for living in uncertainty but not being defined by your fear of uncertainty it's not there they seem to they seem to perceive the fear of uncertainty as an enemy whereas on the spiritual journey, the fear of uncertainty, again, it's like one of those signposts. It's like loneliness or frustration or boredom. It's just, that's the place where we need to look, that narrow doorway where we can go until we open up into a larger reality. And say, well, of course it's uncertain. It's all uncertain. Conditioning on the conditioned realm. It's all uncertain. We don't have to be afraid of it. We investigate it. So, one of the tricky things, as I was saying, when we're learning to live in 
a conscious relationship to faith, trust, confidence, sadha, is that even if any of this makes sense, often we have to deal with this backlog of denied distrust or doubt. And that can be really, really confusing, really, really, really tricky, can really cause a lot of, create a lot of chaos in our minds. Yeah. Mm. And it's, it's similar to what happens when people have to encounter death. Yeah. Most people, most of us are carrying with us a denied fear of, of death, our own mortality or the death of others and death in general, the subject of death. And, yeah. If you embrace the traditional, conventional Buddhist model and the, this, we could have been entertaining this fear of death for many lifetimes. So it's a strong impulse to deny death and to be afraid of death. Certainly there's plenty of evidence in the common culture about all the use of the symbols around death that intimidate people. And then when somebody, somebody dies, and even if we were expecting it, it can force us to handle this backlog of denied fear of death. You know, it can be very confusing. You know, if somebody dies, you get overcome with grief. Say, Why do I feel so much grief when I knew that person was going to die anyway? Well, it's because encountering the raw reality of death opens us up to something that we, we've got a, an unconscious denial in regards. You know, we like to think we know what's going on in our own minds, but often we don't. A denial is a a very mysterious matter and very powerful uh, force in consciousness. Hmm. We may have observed denial happening in the case of other people, but when it's happening in our own hearts and minds, we're perhaps not so aware of it. But, but when death means we have to look at our relationship to the subject, then it can open us up to a whole backlog of denied death that it's very difficult and can take a long time to find our way through that until we're face to face with the raw reality of this moment of death and have a real direct relationship with it. Well, likewise with our habit of denying fear of uncertainty. It's not cool, it's not welcome, it's not popular to be afraid of uncertainty so we put up a good face and pretend we know what we're doing. That's how we grow up. And on all sorts of levels, we have a fear of uncertainty, we have doubt. And in many cases, it's denied. And in our culture, perhaps, possibly even more so than ever before, throughout all humanity, we don't have collective means for accommodating uncertainty anymore. Most myths and symbols and religions have lost their influence these days, at least in secular society so even if any of this talk about faith does make sense and even if we have some inkling or some intuition of the validity of living with faith to really surrender ourselves to it in an appropriate meaningful way when we need to can be hugely difficult because of this backlog of denied fear of uncertainty. 
denied self-doubt. Now, if we understand this, even on a theoretical level, it can help us. I don't trust in faith. Maybe for those reasons. We've got a backlog of denied distrust. Maybe also because of other psychological issues in our lives, abandonment issues in early life, and betrayal, and things that happened that shouldn't have happened, or things that should have happened that didn't happen. Certainly the case for many people in society these days, and again, perhaps more so than previous times. It's hard to gauge, but there can be causes for the psychological limb of trusting to be damaged so that even if we have in our hearts the capacity for living a life of faith, we don't know how to access it. We don't know how to relate in a trusting way to this potential of having faith. We might want to, but something quickly closes down. And physically, you know, contraction takes place, a habitual distrust. And so again, whatever it is that causes the obstruction to turning to faith and allowing it to nourish us and guide us and sustain us in the face of uncertainty it can take it we need to be willing to give it all the time it needs to unpick this until it can ripen until it can blossom until it can shine and give us the nourishment that it potentially can wise, careful, skillful application of faith is very, very different from naive believing. and can be a, a real source of sustenance on this journey. And there will be times, for sure, that we need it. We're on this spiritual journey because we're not convinced by uh, the stories of the material world, uh, secular presentation of what's relevant and meaningful have left us feeling unconvinced and so we're interested in the inner journey the spiritual journey and that means we will encounter the unknown the mysterious we will need to feel uncertain so can we encounter uncertainty and stay open sensitive alert careful inquiring or do we contract and obstruct and maybe regrettably turn away from a cutting edge. It's when we meet the mystery of life, even if it's agonizing. When we apply ourselves to the spiritual exercises, they work. Things happen. Using these spiritual symbols and techniques and concentration and discernment and inquiry and energy and renunciation and these exercises do have an effect and the habits of denying reality the habits of personality belief the habits of pitting ourselves up against reality they start to dissolve and you go wow kapow didn't expect that to happen where'd that energy come from how did that happen I thought I had it together (laughs) big surprise (laughs) If we're not careful, we don't have faith, we don't have confidence, we don't have a commitment to integrity, we can then flip to the other side and say, I'm a complete mess, I've got nothing together. 
lack of self-confidence, lack of faith. So being able to prepare ourselves with mindful, wise faith is tremendously important to have access to the spiritual faculty so that as the spiritual exercises do what they're supposed to do and dissolve our commitment to personality belief, for instance, and we're left wide open and vulnerable and not knowing and petrified and feeling like this is all too much, this is intolerable, this is unendurable. Yet faith means we can tolerate it and endure it. It's not I that's tolerating it and I that's enduring it. I is actually quite pathetic in the face of the forces of delusion. The real forces of delusion are really convincing, utterly convincing. They make us drunk. They make us foolish. They make us behave in ways that that are in the opposite direction of awakening. Many of you will be familiar with that story in the scriptures where, of where the Buddha spent a night with this uh, other uh, truth seeker, this wanderer who was looking for awakening and very committed to his goal and he was on the way to see the Buddha. He'd heard about how great the Buddha was and he was going to see the Buddha and, and he was very enthusiastic about his precious spiritual journey that he was on and questing to find the truth. And as it happened, they both, uh, this, this fellow, his name was Pukusati and Pukusati and the Buddha both ended up in the same hut, the same accommodation overnight. And uh, in the morning, Pukusati was getting ready to head off on his his important spiritual journey and to go and find the Buddha and didn't realise who he spent the night with. And, and the Buddha realised that this guy was a little obstructed and so out of compassion and wisdom uh, dropped a few hints and then elaborated on a few hints and gave him a very sophisticated and in-depth discourse to the point where eventually Pukka said, oh my goodness, <laughs> this is the Buddha. Yeah, this is the Buddha, what am I doing? And at which point, of course, he was you know, pretty embarrassed and upset that he'd made such a fool of himself. And, well, that's what happens when we, yeah. I am overly attached to my spiritual journey and I am striving to get myself enlightened. This I, the, even the spiritual journey we can overly emphasize and give far too much value, actually becomes an obstruction. In that case, even spending the night right there next to the Buddha himself, when we're caught up in me and my spiritual journey, me and my way, we don't see it. So we apply ourselves, we surrender ourselves to the spiritual inquiry, to the training, to the bone-breaking, boring practice, gut-wrenchingly tedious practice that sometimes Uh, humiliation that's involved over and over again until we discover letting go of this commitment to me and my way. How do we endure that? Keep falling over yet again. How do we pick ourselves up again? Catch ourselves being dishonest yet again. 
How do we deal with the humiliation? Mm. It's through faith. Mm. See, but the obstruction seems so dense. It seems so thick. Mm. I remember many years ago when I was walking up to a cold stream across the Chiviots and it was a very unpleasant walk as it happened. Bad weather and the track was just a quagmire and very hard going walking through all this mud and, and the fellow that I was walking with together we just decided to really leg it and get to our destination in one day instead of spending yet another night out in the room misery and so we really leant into it and we were very focused and just as we were crossing the bridge and going into Coldstream I was stopped I noticed in the tarmac in front of me there and I noticed this this dandelion popping up through the tarmac. And it just, in that moment, I, I think perhaps because I had been putting forth a bit of effort, as a, and, um, mine was a bit more focused than usual, I just noticed, I said, what must it be like to be that dandelion with all that thick black tarmac overhead? Said, How am I ever going to get through all that blackness? Yeah. From the apparent reality, it looks like it's not possible. And yet it did it. It's in the nature of the dandelion. You break open, you see it breaking open this black tarmac and blossoming, shining through, and outshining the darkness. Well, having heard the teachings from the Buddha and the awakened disciples, we can have we can afford to have faith that however dark and thick and dense the obstructions to awakening might appear to be, we can afford to have faith, we can afford to trust that it's possible. You know, the interest we have in freedom from suffering, we can trust in that. But what trust that trust really is, what that faith really is, you know, let's not try too hard to define it, but rather to feel it and cultivate a conscious relationship with it, one that really nourishes us. And thank you very much this evening for your attention.